All right, so we're actually going to pick up this evening in uh, Daniel 1. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of pick up from verse 14 and 15, but we're really on the last section of this chapter. And as I've said before, we're I'm trying to go slow so that we can try to build a really good foundation for understanding this book because it's so important. Uh, this book is critical to not only Old Testament history, uh, the history of Israel, the history of Judah. Uh, it's also very important for prophecy and certainly very, very relevant to our time because once we get to chapter 7, in the first six chapters, as I told you, it's all about Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Once we get to chapter 7 and beyond, it's all looking forward into the future. Some of the future from them has already happened, and we'll see that, uh, the prophecies that Daniel spoke. Some of it, of course, awaits fulfillment, and we live in a very exciting time. You know, back in the 1800s, there were a lot of people that were convinced that the prophets were mistaken. Uh, I still have books written by scholars back there in the mid to late 1800s, and they're saying, well, the, the prophets were mistaken because they thought that Israel would be a nation, and of course, Israel is not a nation. And so we know that, you know, they were just, they misunderstood the prophecy or whatever. And of course, uh, all of that changed in 1948 when the nation of Israel uh, fulfilled by proclaiming their nationhood the prophecy that a nation would be born in one day. And of course, that really started the prophecy time clock ticking, and we're watching events unfold around us all the time. <coughs> so we'll be in Daniel chapter 1, and I'm tonight's class and really the notes are going to be a little bit different. There's going to be a lot of scripture which you all have in your notes because someone does the homework for you, right? <laughs> However, I want you to understand I don't do all this homework for you so that you can just read those notes and say, oh, here's references to 10 or 20 verses. I put all of those in there hoping that some of you will sit down during the week. This is like your worksheet for the week to sit down and go through those verses and see what all those verses say. We don't have time to do it all tonight, but uh, hopefully you'll do some study during the week. So let's pray, and we'll get started in our study this evening, and we'll just ask God's blessing on our time together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again as we approach Your Word, we realize that we stand on holy ground. We realize that as the words of the prophets have been fulfilled in the past, so also they'll be fulfilled in the future. We realize that this puts us at a very critical juncture of human history. And as we look around the world and as we see the massive transformation that's taken place in the nations of the world over the past few years, we see, Father, that the nations as a whole have chosen to turn against you. And the anti-biblical, anti-Christ attitude that prevails in our world today is extremely strong. And yet, Father, scattered across this land, across the plains of Africa and the jungles of Asia and the steppes of 
Siberia and all over. We know that there are small groups that are gathering together just like this one. There are churches that gather together who love you, who love your word, and who believe in your promises. So Father, we recognize that we are part of a an uncounted and innumerable company of believers who are members of the body of Christ. We thank you for the privilege of meeting in this home. We thank you that we know that God the Holy Spirit is here to open our hearts and minds, to illumine us to the truth of Scripture, to make it come alive in our lives as we go out from these doors. So let Jesus Christ be magnified and exalted in all that we do, for we ask it in his magnificent and precious name. Amen. Amen. At the end of our study last time, I gave you a little quote and I put it at the top of your notes because I wanted to point something out that I didn't get to point out last week. It's a quote by Warren Wearsby, who is a highly respected student of the word, expositor, scholar, whatever term you want to use to identify that. And it's a great quote. I don't want to knock it, but I want to use it as an exhibit or an example of the importance of thinking things through. So here it is. The quote, Warren Wiersbe says, Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. That is superstition. But rather, faith is in obeying in spite of the circumstances. Now, Christians tend to love canned little quotes. I guess we're kind of like the world. The world loves snatchy little sayings. But I want you to think that statement through. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but rather in obeying in spite of the circumstances. To me, that's a very true statement for someone who's already a Christian. But think about the unbeliever. Is the unbeliever actually trusting Christ in spite of the evidence? We have the evidence of prophecy. We have the evidence of history. We have the evidence of the scripture. We have the evidence of the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We have the evidence of all of the great heroes of faith down through the ages. We're not simply taking a blind leap in the dark. Everything that we look at, whether we look at science, whether we look at mathematics, whether we look at history, everything confirms that what we have in this book, even our own experience day by day. You know, I've often referred to the fact that truth has to meet three criteria. Number one, it has to be coherent. If you can't understand it, it's of no value. So truth has to be coherent. Secondly, truth has to be consistent within itself. Going all the way back to Aristotle, the principle of non-contradiction is that truth can't contradict itself. You can't have something white and black at the same time. You can't have something true and false at the same time. It has to be consistent within itself. And then not only does truth have to be coherent and consistent, it has to correlate to life as we know it. I could reel off a lot of the various cults, a lot of the various isms that have come along through the world. You can probably think of some of them. There's a whole bunch of them right up there in Sedona. And they have a worldview that does not relate to a life as we know it. 
our day-to-day experience. I spent a couple of weeks in a Buddhist uh, monastery in Korea at one time. The Buddhists were going to give us a talk on what Buddhism is, and the monk that began telling us said, let me summarize Buddhism for you. Everything is nothing. That's the summary. Everything is nothing. And then went on from there to tell us that good things that happen are not a reason to be happy. Bad things that happen are not a reason to be sad because none of it really uh, matters because really we're just living in a dream. I don't know about you, but that doesn't relate to life as I know it. Life as I experience it. But when I read the Bible and when I see that even great men like David, Samson, Abraham, Moses, they were weak and frail men and all of them failed at various points in their life. And then I read about the decisions that people make and some people make wise decisions and the consequences of their decisions are good results. And other people make consistently bad decisions and the result is their life keeps getting worse and worse and worse. That relates, that correlates to life the way you and I know it. And so when we look at this simple statement, here's what I would say. Faith in Jesus Christ does consider evidence. We consider evidence as we have before us a Bible that the world has tried again and again and again to wipe out. We have prophecies that we can look at from a thousand years, and in some cases probably at least 2,000 years, 3,000 years before Christ, about His coming, the time of His coming, the place of His coming, where He would be born, where He would be raised, how He would grow up, what His ministry would be like, the fact that He would be hated and ultimately crucified and then raised from the dead. All of those things have happened. And so we're looking at evidence. It's not proof. You know, you try to prove it to someone. To prove it, you have to be able to do a scientific experiment in front of them and replicate the experiment. That's what science is all about. We're talking about spiritual reality. And spiritual reality can only be comprehended by faith, not by intellect. And so... I just point out, and I've got a whole paragraph there, faith at the moment of salvation is without works. Faith, once we have entered salvation, is with works. And I think what Warren Wiersbe is talking about is really faith with works, which is relating, of course, to those who have already trusted Christ, not to the new believer. If I say to a new believer, you need to come to faith, and he says, what does that mean? And I say, well, it means obeying God in spite of the circumstances. What have I just taught him? Salvation by works. Paul makes it very clear. By grace we're saved through faith without works. James teaches us that once we become a believer, now it is faith plus works. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. So very quickly, I just wanted to... uh, run through that. Uh, We're going to look, I'm going to start reading, I think I'll back up to verse 14. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and then very quickly I want to hit on some points that I think are very important for the time in which you and I live. So if you will follow me, Daniel 1.14. 
So he consented with them. This is, of course, the uh, eunuch or the official over Daniel and his friends. He consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter. The word fatter is a word that literally means healthier. They looked healthier in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Again, the word for vegetables literally means things that grow from seeds. So it could be vegetables, could be fruits, could be grains, cereals, things like that. As for these four young men, God gave them. You might want to just underline those three words, very important. God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is supernatural insight and understanding. At the end of the days, when the king had said that they would be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Bear in mind that Nebuchadnezzar was a young man who came up in Babylon. Assyria was the world power. Everyone trembled when they heard about Assyria. And this brilliant young commander and leader came up. And we sometimes tend to think of these people as being very ignorant. If you really study some of these ancient cultures, you would be astounded at the brilliance of some of these people. Nebuchadnezzar was that kind of a guy. He knew how to lead. He knew how to command. He was a tremendous architect and builder. Uh, he was steeped in all the literature of the ancient world. And he, as a young upstart, he came up and began to threaten the mighty Assyrian Empire. And as you know, the axis of power was divided between Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south. And when he began coming up out of Babylon, which was the eastern and southeastern end of the Assyrian Empire, uh, it was something that shook the world. Uh, he challenged the greatest powers of his time, and he overthrew them both. So an amazing man, and you'll have to wait until chapter 4 to see that he became a child of God by faith. You will meet Nebuchadnezzar when we stand in the presence of the Lord. So... He brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, again, they estimate between 50 and 80 uh, young noblemen were taken in the first deportation. So among all of these 50 to 80, none of them compared. None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And what this means is, they were listed, lifted to a higher level of service than their fellows. The others were probably serving in the provinces, serving in the cities and towns, but these four uh, were very, very close to the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. And that's going to become important again and again as we go through these first six chapters. I mentioned to you last week that Ezekiel, prior to being taken in the second deportation, which was 597 
B.C., while he was still in Jerusalem teaching a Bible class, mentioned Daniel by name. That tells us that within 10 years of Daniel being taken, he had become, had reached a legendary status, not only in Babylon, but the word of his uh, tremendous faith had spread all the way back to Jerusalem. Uh, you have the references there in your notes in Ezekiel 14, 14, and 20, when God said that if he was going to judge the city, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So going back a couple of thousand years, he picks Noah and Job and links Daniel, uh, who was, of course, living at that time in with those legendary figures. So tremendous impact on the part of this courageous young man who devoted his life to obedience regardless of the cost. And one of the things that we're going to see in our first six chapters is when do Christians, when do believers disobey the government? This is what we call civil disobedience. There are times when we cannot obey the government. There are some Christians who mistakenly take Romans 13 and they take it out of context because the very verse before uh, Romans 13 is, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. And then you go into Romans 13 where it says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for the higher powers are of God, and whatever powers exist, exist because of God. And so they, they take that as a blanket statement, whatever my government tells me to do, I must do. Daniel teaches us otherwise. And of course, the apostles in Acts 4 and Acts 5 teach us otherwise. We must obey God rather than men. Here's what Daniel teaches us. There are times when it's merely a matter of compromise. Sometimes the government will push us toward a position of compromise. We have to be very wise and very skilled. And this is where Daniel... Uh, and his friends in chapter 1, and again we're going to see in chapter 2, they use compromise. They use reason. They use the power of appeal to avoid having to compromise their faith, and it works out fine, and that's wonderful. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to have the use of compulsion. And the use of compulsion is either you bow down to this image I have made or you go into the fiery furnace. When it gets to that place and the government commands us to do something we can't do, we have to resist, even to the point of death. Then we get to Daniel chapter 6. Now it's not a command to do something the Bible says we can't do. It's Daniel being told that he must stop praying three times a day this is, of course, a, a matter of restraint. The tyranny of compulsion to do what God says not to do or the tyranny of compulsion not to do what God has, of course, told us to do. And in both cases, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, they did the right thing and they were preserved by God. That's not a guarantee that it always happens that way. Christians throughout history... Christians all over the world today are suffering and sometimes paying the ultimate price because they refuse to bow 
the knee to the dictates of their government. But here's the point that I want us to get tonight. I think this is so important for us in the time we're living in. Satan's world, the cosmic system, cannot stop the blessing of God from coming through to his people. We live in a fallen world. We live in what's called the devil's world. And he will use everything he can to coerce, to persuade, to punish, uh, to surround us with all kinds of restrictions and restraints. But there's one thing he cannot do. He cannot stop the blessing of God from piercing the darkness of his kingdom and rewarding the, uh, the faithful soul. So I'm going to give you uh, seven examples of this. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Again, the notes, uh, cross-references are there for you. Uh, but the ones that I don't read, I hope you will look up. Because these are given to reinforce the point. You know, I don't just want to throw things out and make a point and say, believe this because I said it. In fact, like Martin Luther, I would encourage you never believe something just because someone you trust or respect says it. When it comes to the Word of God, you believe it because the Bible teaches it. Martin Luther said, I would that all of my theology and my preaching and all the preaching of all the preachers were gone if only the people of God would get into the Word and study it themselves. So let the Bible be your authority and check these things out. So, a few spiritual mathematics there on page 10. Divine providence plus faith and obedience equals historical impact for Christ. I want to stress that again. Divine providence, what does that mean? That means God working His eternal plan in the affairs of men. You know, our forefathers often said there is a hand that moves among the affairs of men. There is a God that judges among the affairs of men. And that's what we refer to as providence. God has a plan. I just looked up uh, a few days ago. I was thinking of... Uh, the various theories of history. I don't know if you've ever come across any of the various theories of history. There's the great man theory. That theory is based on the fact that along the way through history, great men rise up and they make history go a certain way. And so it's, it's the great man or the, the uh, strong man theory. Uh, there's an economic class warfare theory. That's the Marxist theory of history. There's the evolutionary theory. We're all getting better. You can see in your lifetimes, right? Those of you that are older, the world's getting better, right? I don't think so. We're getting smarter. We're getting more intelligent. Do you realize that the final exam for eighth graders in the late 1800s required them to be able to read and write Latin, and they had to take exams on reading the books in the original language to pass the eighth grade? We are nowhere close today. But when we look at all these theories of history, what is the biblical approach to history? It is what we call providence. God is working out his plan of redemption. It's all focused on Christ, but the outworking of it is for the salvation of the souls of as many members of the human race as possible. So divine providence plus faith and obedience. And this is what we're seeing here with Daniel and his friends. 
They trust God and therefore they obey God. You have many passages. Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Those who never seek will never find. As we're going to see, God seeks those who seeks Him. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. And then, of course, we have the discussion of Jesus with the widow, with the uh, woman at the well in John 4, 23 and 24. Seek the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? The truth is in the Bible, the spirit is within the believer. What do we have to do? We have to put the two of them together. This book is not a lucky talisman. There are people that carry a Bible because they believe it will keep them safe. There are people that put Bibles under their pillow because they feel it will keep them safe. Or they keep it on the coffee table because they believe there's some magic in this book. That's not true. The truth of this book is of no value until I take it in. And when I take it in as a child of God, the Spirit of God who is our helper, which means co-worker, which means we have a part to play. We have to enter this partnership and cooperation. And as we take in the Word, God the Holy Spirit then takes it and begins building the, whether you want to call it the house or the mansion of the soul. Did you realize that you're building a house in your soul? You've heard the word edification. You know what edification comes from? It comes from two Greek words. Oikodomeo. Oiko means to means a house, and domeo is the verb to build, and it means to build a house. So what is edification? Proverbs tells us. We lay a foundation, other foundation, Paul says, can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. And then there are seven pillars. Remember from Proverbs? Wisdom has built her house. She has raised up her seven pillars. What are they? Seven's the number of perfection. Pillars are for stability. So on the foundation of faith in Christ, we are building an inner house of the soul. By the way, it's going to re be reflected in the house that Jesus builds for us in heaven. Think about that. Am I going to live in a shack or am I going to live in a mansion? It's a good question. I'm sure all of them will be far greater than anything we can imagine. So when we put divine providence with faith and obedience, what happens? When a person does that, they are going to affect history for Christ, what I call historical impact. It's like throwing a pebble in a pool. And the ripples begin to go out and out and out. And the ripples will reach a shore somewhere that you and I will never know. I read just recently of a woman who was living in a major city in America and uh, talked to a pastor and she said, you know, I'm raising a house full of kids. I'm so sorry that I'm so busy I can't do anything for the Lord. He said, don't you realize that pouring your heart and life and soul and sharing your faith with those children is the greatest impact that you could ever have for Jesus Christ. To be called to be a father, to be called to be a mother, and to play that role of being a role model and a teacher and an instructor and a guide is absolutely phenomenal. 
and you take that little pebble and throw it into the pool of life and you say, what have I done? What has my life counted for? And what do the Psalms tell us? Children are quivers or, or arrows in the quiver of a warrior. What does a warrior do with an arrow? He fires that arrow. You ever hear the old song? I shot an arrow into the air, came to earth I know not where, for who has sight so keen and narrow that it can follow the flight of an arrow? I threw a song into the air, and where it went I know not where, for who has ears so strong? And I forget the whole poem that they can follow the, the flight of a song. But many years later in an oak, I found the arrow still unbroke. And the song from beginning to end I found years later in the heart of a friend. Has life ever come back around to you in such a way that you say, I never thought that would mean anything at all? This is what we're talking about with Daniel. Why is it important? Because you and I are Daniel and his friends right now. We are Daniel and his friends in a hostile environment. We're Daniel and his friends in a government that hates God. I hate to say it, and I'm not saying that that's true of everyone in positions of power. But we are being told that we cannot pray. There are people in prison in the United States of America tonight because they were courageous enough to stand on a street corner and pray silently. People in Britain have been arrested and put in prison. They're serving longer sentences than people serve for assault and murder. That's the environment that we live in. That's the world that we're in. So how will you and I have an effect? Not by going out and trying to be some superhero. Not by trying to attract attention to ourselves, But just in the humility of day-to-day -day life to study this book, to drink in this truth, and then to let it be lived out in our life. God will take care of the rest. So... That's the mathematics. Now let's look at the categories. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. You can see there on page 11, the cosmic system cannot stop divine blessing. I'm not going to read all of those. I just wanted to make the point. When God wants to bless you, He will bless you. Nothing can stop it. Read through those passages and you'll see that we live in the devil's world, but the devil's world can't stop divine blessing. So here are the categories of blessing very quickly. Point number one, God's blessing begins with the love of and obedience to His Word. Our first blessing is this book. Our first blessing is what we have in Christ. And that's where it all begins. And... You know, as the psalmist said, Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is a dark world. This is a dangerous world. We need a light. We need protection. We need guidance. You have a quote there from Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 to 20. I won't take the time to read it. Number two, and I'm going to go through these pretty quick because I'll probably review them when I come back. But I want us to get the idea in our minds. Number two, God can give the blessing of favor from those in positions of power. This is what happened with Daniel and his friends. 
heathen, unbelieving people in a position of ultimate power, and yet they were swayed to be favorable to Daniel and his friends. In Genesis 39, verses 2 to 4, you remember Joseph was sold into slavery. He ends up in the house of Potiphar. What happens? He ends up running the house of Potiphar. Then Potiphar's life, wife lies about him, says that he assaulted her. He's thrown into prison. What happens? He ends up running the prison. Like a cork, you push it under, it's going to come back to the surface. God can give blessing of favor from those in positions of power. Third, this includes physical blessings that are contrary to the laws of nature. You know, God can bless you contrary to the laws of nature. In verses 15 and 16, Job said in Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In other words, if I had to starve my body to feed my soul, I'd do it. And we have many records. Viktor Frankl speaks of those in the Nazi concentration camps who gave up their food to feed the sick and the suffering and those who were less well off and how somehow they stayed healthy and they weren't eating anything at all. And the people that were eating the very little they were being given were starving to death. God can bless you contrary to the laws of nature. You have the story, of course, of the mother of Samson in Judges 13, 24 and 25. She bears a son, normal child. You know, we always, how do we picture Samson? Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He didn't look like that at all. He looked like maybe any one of us. Maybe a little better, but. <laughs> what happened to this normal child? says, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan, the camp of Dan. When the Spirit of God began to move him, supernatural power worked through him. You have the same thing with Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 5-8. I won't bother to read that. Point four. Intellectual blessings, or what the Bible calls wisdom, Beyond normal personal capacity. God can give intellectual blessing beyond your normal intellectual capacity. Proverbs 2, 6-8 says, The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the ways of His saints. You have references there in Matthew 10, 19 and 20, and Luke 21, 14, Jesus telling his disciples, they are going to turn you over to the authorities and they're going to threaten you with death. Don't worry about it. Don't try to formulate what you're going to say in advance. Don't try to come up with some great statement of faith. Let the Spirit of God work through you. He will give you in that hour the things that you should say. Luke 153, uh, this is a part of the Song of Mary uh, as she was celebrating with Elizabeth over the birth of John and Jesus. She said, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. You know when Jesus said, I came to call sinners and not the righteous to repentance? You know what the Pharisees said? 
Well, we don't need him then because we're righteous. And what they didn't realize by saying that is they excluded themselves from the blessings of all that he had to give them. It's the same here. Are we hungry or are we full? <clears throat> do we crave the truth of the word or do we say, I'm good. I can make it through life. I don't need any of that divine insight. I can make my own decisions. Well, that's the rich and the rich get sent away empty handed. Terrible, terrible thing to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Point five. God can give the blessing of promotion beyond one's peers. You know, we are all in a rank somewhere. We're all in a status somewhere. You know, whether we're a father, a mother, a teacher, a scientist, law enforcement, military, all of us are in a rank somewhere. You know, I've studied martial arts for many, many years, and I can tell you one thing. If you go into a serious martial arts school, everybody in that school knows it's not a matter of what belt you're wearing. Everybody in that school knows who is number one, who's number two, who's number three. They know exactly where everybody falls by performance. Well, all of us are in a capacity somewhere, in a rank somewhere. But God is able to give us promotion beyond our peers. I was asked to pray once at a gathering of martial artists in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was a world championship. There were seven masters seated at the table. You should have seen these guys. I looked at them and I thought, what a bunch of Pharisees. You know, I had this Buddha look. All of them, of course, wondering what rank am I and where do I fit and all this stuff. So they asked me to pray because the guy that was putting it on was my instructor and he was a Christian. Very unusual at a world championship. So I got up and prayed and I prayed to the Son of God who is the highest ranked of all ranks in the universe. And I said, we have belts here from white to green, yellow, purple, brown, red, black. His belt is gold. And, I, and one of the things you notice in a lot of martial arts, as you get higher rank, your belt gets wider. I said his belt reaches from his waist to his chest. And nobody ranks with him. I wasn't very popular. <laughs> but I did tell the truth. Let's uh, just look at a couple of these verses on page 13. I love Jeremiah 1.6 and 18 and 19. When God called Jeremiah to preach, he, he was a youth, a young man, probably late teens. And in that culture and society, you didn't speak unless you were an elder and respected for your wisdom. So Jeremiah responds and says, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Behold, I, God says to him, Behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. And that was the beginning of 40 years 
a very, very painful ministry for Jeremiah as he was forbidden to marry the one that he had chosen. He had to live a solitary life. He was often imprisoned. Uh, he was uh, brutalized in many, many ways. Um, but God preserved him and he came through faithful in the end. Let's look at point number six. God can give you the blessing of longevity of life. I remember posting something online once and I got a bunch of answers back from Christians in various places. Some came from Africa and other places. And they said, this is ridiculous. The Bible tells us that God has written the days of our life before we were ever born. That's true. He may have also written in there, this was less than it could have been. Because the Scripture makes it very clear that our decisions and attitudes to Him can determine how long we live and how well we live. So the blessing of longevity, Exodus 20.12 goes with Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, which says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. What is the implication on the other side? Live a rebellious life, your life's not going to last very long. Deuteronomy 4, 25 and 26. If you do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke Him to anger, you will not prolong your days. But you will be utterly destroyed. I remember talking to a young friend of mine, 16 years old, shortly after I'd become a Christian. Uh, this guy was kind of the... I don't know, big man on campus at the high school, I guess you could say. Good-looking, athletic, great personality, very popular. And uh, he and I spent an evening one time with me sharing. He had questions, and he came to ask me questions. And we sat down, and I opened the Bible, and I gave him the, the best answers I could at the time, told him the importance of coming to faith in Christ, and at the end of our talk, he sat there for a minute thinking, and he said, you know, I think you're probably right. But he said, right now, I'm having the time of my life. I'm popular. I, You know, everybody wants me to come to their parties and, you know, all of this stuff. And he said, I'm going to think about this, and maybe later I'll trust in Christ. Two months later, he took an overdose of drugs and died. I can't tell you how many times similar things like that have happened in my experience, not just things that I've heard of. So the life of longevity. Deuteronomy 4.40, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And the last point you and I believers who are living in the church age enter into union with Jesus Christ starting out think about this from the moment we put our faith in Christ we start our life with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ deposited to our account we have a heavenly bank account that is treasure beyond what this world could offer you know, Jesus said that a man would be a fool 
to give up his soul to gain the whole world. There are people that sell their soul for a lot less than the world. Sometimes they sell it for a moment. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ according to Ephesians 1-3. And if you go through Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, you can count them up. Depending on how you count, you'll miss some and, and different people come up with a different count. But in those first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul mentions between 33 and 40 things that are given to us the moment we trust in Christ. Spiritual riches, spiritual blessings. Question now is, what are we going to do with them? Because they're deposited to us like the parable of the talents. And the question will be, what did you do with what I gave you? We're going to look at this a little further when we come back. Uh, we'll look at Colossians 1, 9 through 14. I think there are seven things that are mentioned in that one section of Scripture, and you can look over them there in your notes and prepare yourself, and we're going to talk about that when we come back. You know, it seems to me I've been up here 10 minutes, and our hour's up. But um, all the verses after the ABC, that is just reaffirming what you told us here, the capacity for wisdom and understanding, and then you look at the... Yeah, those all come out of Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Right, but then the verses afterwards are just reaffirming the capacity. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, those are all backup of the points that are being made there. So give those a, a study. Take some time. Sit down with your Bible. Grab a coffee or a tea. Read through some of them. It'll be to your benefit and blessing. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to celebrate very quickly the Lord's table and we will be done. Thank you, Father, for each and everyone gathered here tonight. You brought each of us into this world to fulfill a purpose and a plan. You've equipped us with everything that we need if we simply trust your word and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. I pray that you'll surround us with your protection in these dark and difficult times. But above all, I pray that you'll help us to be faithful to the task that you have called us to fulfill. Thank you for this evening and the blessing of it. Bless each one as we go our separate ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.